open wide the gates of hell and come forth from your blessed abyss. All hail, unholy one. Now playing podcast. Marjorie. <laughs> You're such a perk. Stuart in L.A. I feel stupid about this. And Arnie. I'm here, baby. I'm here. And once again, here with a review of Lords of Salem. Now playing podcast. Podcast contains harsh language and spoilers. Today we're discussing the Lords of Salem, starring Sherry Moon Zombie, Bruce Davison, Jeff Daniel Phillips, Ken Foray, Dee Wallace, Meg Foster, Judy Geeson, and directed by Rob Zombie. I'm Arnie, and I gotta get home to the warden without racking up another DWS, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Driving while making Stuart watch Rob Zombie movies? Yes, you are very guilty of that, Arnie. Stuart in L.A. And this is Marjorie. Well, Stuart, you did get out of watching House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, at least for now playing. You, you've seen them both. Yeah, I, I, you took me to the theaters, but yeah, I didn't have to share my feelings about it uh, on tape, sure. We're doing an extra bonus podcast here on Thursday night because we wanted to review this movie, but also as a way to remind listeners that we have our fall donation drive going on. The movies at the silver level are the Peg Frost movies, which include such great movies as Paul, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, which I think is one of the best. Well, you showed your hand on Paul. That one's a little bit more contentious than some of the others that you've named. Yes. But silver level donors can find out about that. And then coming out to gold level donors tomorrow, Psycho 2. Electric Boogaloo? No, but it was from the 80s, so close. These donation drives keep us on the air and allow us to do such bonus things as this Lords of Salem kind of catch-up podcast. Lords of Salem kind of catch-up podcast. Looking at what is reported to be Rob Zombie's last horror film. And since we did all of his other four films between the Halloween series, which you were on, Stuart, and the House of a Thousand Corpses series, which you were on, Marjorie... It seemed, why not merge the groups and take a look at this, his latest, and again, according to him, last horror effort. Yeah, it should be said, he didn't even really want to make this movie after Halloween 2. He was looking beyond horror. I happened to do extensive research for this movie because, as you said, Arnie, we're doing catch-up. We were originally going to plan to do this in theaters, and as prep for that, I read the book and did a whole lot of behind-the-scenes research. And, yeah, basically, he wanted to make a biker film. That was his dream project. It was going to be some kind of... Probably like Devil's Rejects, but with a more of a action-y vibe to it. And he just couldn't get the funding. And just could not find anyone that wants to green light a non-horror movie by Rob Zombie. So, basically, it came down to what the money was available to do. Blumhouse came to him, the makers of Insidious, said, Hey, Rob, we really want you to make horror, so if you want to make horror, we'll let you do anything you want. For $3 million. And I think that was the hook. After Halloween, working with the Akkads, where he couldn't do anything that he wanted, Rob Zombie was eager to take anyone up that would let him do whatever he chose to film. And this is something he has to have been sitting with for 
quite a while. I mean, I am a Rob Zombie fan, both of movies and music, and I picked up his album Educated Horses before we actually saw him live in concert on that tour back in 06. Marjorie has a story there. <laughs> I, I do. I got the bejesus kicked out of me in the mosh pit. There were some brutal, brutal people. You know, I used to be in mosh pits in the 90s all the time. Me and my brother were just talking about this. We could handle our stuff. But these people are just vicious anymore. And you still call yourself a fan, even after the mosh pit tore you limb to limb. I remember you being thrown over a fence, right? Well, (laughs) security had to pull me out in the front. And what happened was I was standing next to Arnie. We were very close. And some idiots behind me were talking about how they could take people down so they could get to the front. And then it just went downhill from there. My feet never touched the ground. I Your got- shoes did. My- <laughs> she was pulled out literally shoeless like the Wicked Witch of the East. Yeah, and when the security guys pull you out of a crowd, they really don't care if they hurt you on the way down. I was banged up, bruised up, lost my voice. I, I had some blood on me. We don't know if it was yours. It might have been. Out in the <laughs> lobby area of the concert hall, which was a metal barn. It was not in a concert hall. It was in a barn, which loud music in a barn sounds terrible. I have to admit the acoustics were not all I hoped it to be. Yeah. So <laughs> you go out to the lobby and it looked like a war zone. There was people like bandages on their head. I swear there were some innards hanging out. Seriously, there were EMTs everywhere. It looked like a triage scene from the TV show Mad. I mean, there were just people on gurneys all over, blood, people yelling. I had to get cops involved. Fortunately, she had a second pair of shoes in the car, so I had to get the cops involved to even let me out of the building to go get to the shoes. But I think, honestly, the best part of all of this isn't that we stayed for the finale, which we did. (laughs) The bitter, bloody end. It was the next day at work. Because I couldn't go to work the next day. I had no voice. I feel like I'd been run over by a truck. Like, I couldn't move. My body was sore. Muscles pulled. I had scabs on me from cuts. and had big bruises. I couldn't go to work. So Arnie called in for me, relayed the message to my boss. And my boss, he went to my employees and he said, you know, she's not going to be in today. She got hurt at a Rob Thomas concert. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's hilarious. So my employees were like, what? What? (laughs) And they were so confused. You'll never be respected in that office again. You might as well quit that day. Ain't nobody going to listen to anyone that got beat up at Rob Thomas. What was that? Matchbox 20? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I set the record straight. Yeah, that was her story. But anyway, to bring it back to this movie, which may have hurt just as much as the mosh pit, I might add. My my burning curiosity is, did she have a better time at that show than watching this movie? I really can't wait to find out. I don't know. Here's here's the problem. I know what happened at the concert. I'm still not (laughs) sure about the movie. Oh, we're going to get into it. But what both of these had in common was Rob Zombie and the Lords of Salem, because that was a song on that 2006 album. Yeah, it started as a song. Uh, Rob doesn't spend a lot of time talking on the commentary of the DVD or interviews or anything, really sharing why he does what he does. I think he is a man that follows his bliss. Ideas pop into his head, and you just go with it, and you don't question it. You just throw it up here. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that... It started in a very intangible way, and that Rob Zombie has been quoted as saying this movie just sort of came into being. That he, without much work or writing of fortitude... Or plotting. (laughs) Well, 
I, uh, yes, exactly. I think the loosely constructed series of shocks and events, and I do think that this movie, whether good or bad, is largely understood as a series of visceral experiences rather than, yeah, a story about a character that grows and change. I mean, that's definitely not what we're going to talk about today. But what we are going to talk about is whether Rob Zombie is going to be this master of horror or whether he really should hang it up. And I want to go on the record and say that all my little snipes here about lack of story is not indicative of anything I'm going to say on this podcast because I love House of a Thousand Corpses, but I'm the first to admit it is a complete style over substance film. It takes hackneyed Texas Chainsaw Massacre and other classic horror plot devices, strings them together, but does so in this music video way that creates this awesome vibe that I totally love, and it's a movie I rewatch every year, at least once at Halloween, and sometimes in between, just on flights and things, because it's a fucking fun film. So, the fact that I'm saying already that I'm not quite sure about the story here means nothing, because for me, Rob Zombie is one of those artists who can create a 90-minute music video that I can really groove to. He did that for sure with House of a Thousand Corpses. When he got a little bit more narrative with Devil's Rejects, Halloween, and Halloween 2, I started to take him on those terms, and you can hear those reviews, all of these reviews in the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. I recommended most, but not all of them. But coming into this, I was curious to see how coming after Halloween and Halloween 2, where he really did try to tell some kind of story and give characters some kind of arc, what would happen when he was back on his own turf, able to create his own characters and do everything he wants to do. And, you know, I'm not a fan of Rob Zombie, but I keep waiting for him to make the movie I think he's capable of. I would say this much, and I've mentioned this, I think, when we recorded Halloween. He certainly knows horror movies, and he has, from that wealth of knowledge, an ability to pluck really good moments and reconfigure them. And that way, I think of him like Tarantino. He's a postmodernist. He takes from all over in the history of horror and reimagines it to his own liking. I keep hoping I like the finished results more than I actually do. I can't say that any of them have been great experiences, but I do think there's a great movie in the man, and I, I'm willing to look past his sometimes embarrassing shock rocker theatrics to see if he indeed is going to deliver that movie. I think that he has a lot of vision and like maybe he can see things in his head but can't quite get them out all the way under what he wants to do with film because some of the stuff he does blows you away with the visuals and you're right, the vibe he creates. You want to like it because it's almost like that pseudo retro vibe where this one for a long time, I couldn't even tell you what decade this movie was in. I still think that's a topic to discuss. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I think that you're right, Stuart, and you also, Arnie, that he's got talent, but whether he's been allowed to or realizes his full capability is yet to be seen. Again, I think House of a Thousand Corpses is awesome. Devil's Reject was good. Totally different movie than House of a Thousand Corpses, even though it was the same family. It was different. I I think he can create an atmosphere, but I I don't know that he can make it last for an entire movie. I'd be curious to see what he could do for a haunted house. Yeah, I agree. He is atmospheric, theatrics, you know, music videos. Yeah, all of these things. He's proven that already. What I was hoping this time was indeed he was going to deliver what I like, which is narrative, which is story. And I was so hoping of this that I actually read the book. Believe it or not, Lords of Salem was released simultaneously as a movie in theaters, very briefly, 
and a book. And I experienced both way back in April. I'm looking forward to you telling us what's in the book than the movie. I did read on Wiki that this completed the trifecta for Rob Zombie. He'd been in the box office charts, he'd been in the music charts, and this was his entry into the best-selling books list as an author. Well, not to preview too much of my thoughts, but originally I was going to do a Books and Nachos about it. And then after I read it, I was like, eh, I'll just put it in this show. So I will <laughs> do that. Whatever is a, a supplemental to what we're going to experience, they're very similar, but there are moments that are greatly elongated. And of course, there's more dialogue in the book than I think. There's more concrete scenes in the book. I'll share what was in the book when it's appropriate. What he did say is that the book was based on an earlier draft of the script, and as is common for Zombie, I'm not even quite sure he knew what he was going to make when he was filming. This is the first time in Sid Haig's over 50-year cinematic career that he was left on the cutting room floor. Oh, no, he's in there for a good two seconds. I could point him out, but his character had a substantial part in a flashback that was shot, but then couldn't be used. And we'll talk about that, I think, after we get into the movie, but... Yeah, this movie, I think whatever we're going to say about it, more than any other Rob Zombie movie, this is definitely coming from him. The constraints that are on him are only financial at this point. He had a budget somewhere between 2 to 3 million and 22 days to film this, but everything we're going to see is allowed to be because of Rob Zombie. Nobody told him he had to put that in there. Nobody told him, you know, maybe you should throw this in for the kids. Rob Zombie took no studio notes making this movie, and so whatever we're getting, it's unfiltered zombie. Which makes me wonder, though, as you mentioned, this is coming from the Bloomhouse group, where we covered them with the Insidious films. This was their third original feature after the successes of Paranormal Activity and Insidious, and yet... This one, there's a reason we didn't cover it back in April, and that's because I would have had to fly out and briefly been Arnie and Marjorie in L.A. to see this damn thing. We had to wait for home video because its release was extraordinarily limited, and blink and you miss it. It reminds me of the movie It's Pat, which actually went to one theater just to make Julia Sweeney's mother believe she was in a film. Oh my god, the release of this movie. I yeah. Well, it should be said, Blumhouse is the production company that made the movie. Anchor Bay is the studio, independent studio, that released it. And I am now beginning to suspect there is something called an Anchor Bay curse. And it always seems to strike, Marjorie, I hate to single you out, but whenever we're doing a show together, man, last time Silent Night, if you remember, I had to drive 40 minutes to get to a theater that was playing it and got there late and had to stay to see the rest of the movie. Man, I had a very similar problem watching Lords of Salem as well. I went midnight screening because I had a very complicated weekend ahead of me. It was the only time I was really going to be able to see the movie. Walked into the theater, was there clearly a horror crowd, biding my time. I'm like, when is this going to start? When is this going to start? I couldn't understand why it was delayed 20 minutes, only to find out I was actually in Evil Dead. I was in the wrong theater, and Lords of Salem was playing in another theater. So I ran, and I, I you know, the, the joke, of course, is that, oh my god, I'm missing so much plot. But I was like, at least I read the book. I'll be able to catch up because I read the book. 
And so I got there. I'll I'll tell you when I got there. Saw the movie, but it was a midnight showing. I couldn't stay to see the next show. It's like, God bless it. I only have one other opportunity to see this. And I do not want to pay to see this again. Why don't I go see another movie and I'll just pop in beforehand and see the film? So I did. In its last weekend, I popped into a theater and was like, oh, well, I know it's in theater number six now. I'll just go next door and see how it's going. They had switched theaters. <laughs> Let me guess, Evil Dead again? No, I, I didn't. It was Wizard of Oz, of all things. <laughs> Another witch movie. But I was literally, it was a 24-screen theater. I was literally running door to door, being like, is this witches? Is this witches? Is this witches? I still miss the beginning of the movie. I mean, I came in and there were some witch tits flashing. I'm like, all right, well, clearly I'm in the right theater <laughs> now. But I didn't know how much I had missed then, and I'll be damned. It was gone the next day. So it was hell. It was hell for me in L.A. to see this film. It did not get much of a release, and yeah, I blame Anchor Bay. I was at least thinking, being Anchor Bay, they'd do what they did with Silent Night. They seem to be king of, we're going to put it in theaters in L.A. so we can say it's not a direct-to-video release. But wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. It's on cable, on demand, and home video the exact same day. But this one, they actually waited for, I don't know any of the behind the scenes whys other than it did come with the commentary and all that, but it is one we had to wait till the Halloween season to review instead of spring when I guess maybe 10 of our listeners could have actually seen it. So perhaps <laughs> it worked out for the best. Maybe. It didn't for me. I can tell you that. Having gone to two movies and still didn't get the complete film until I rented this DVD and did, yes, did. So I've seen the movie three times and then I've seen it with commentary. I read the book. I've listened to the soundtrack. Guys, I am ready. Let's talk Lords of Salem, please. Well, you've done all the research. Go ahead. Explain it to me and the listeners. I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> oh, yeah. The plot. The plot summary. You guys are funny. I will do a rough tap dance that kind of will emulate it. In 1697, Reverend Jonathan Hawthorne and the Christians of Salem, Massachusetts, condemned Margaret Morgan and her coven of singing witches to burn at the stake. Now in 2012, the persecuted musical group will have their revenge by recording a comeback album on vinyl and mailing it to the town's most influential DJ, Heidi LaRock, played, of course, by Rob Zombie's perpetual leading lady, Sherry Moon, under an unrecognizable tangle of blonde dreadlocks and tattoos. Heidi first gives the cursed record a spin on her home stereo, and despite the fact that it's a bunch of atonal squeeze-box noises that induces headaches and visions of naked hags licking babies, she decides, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and play it over the air the next day, where 32 other women listening to the show fall into a similar trance, making this mysterious group behind the single, dubbed by one DJ as The Lords of Salem, popular enough to now hold a concert in four days, which the radio station is happy to promote with free tickets. So Heidi proceeds to physically and psychologically deteriorate as the week progresses and this concert nears. On Tuesday, she's attending AA meetings, laughing with colleagues, learning French on long walks home from the station. By Friday, hey, she's smoking heroin in bed and giving angry priest a blowjob while walking her dog in the cemetery. 
The charred naked ghost of Margaret Morgan has special plans for Heidi, pleading in a vision for the 38-year-old single woman to, quote, bleed them a king. And we eventually learn that Heidi's landlady and her two witchy sisters are conspiring to set this rock chick up on a date with Satan, who's taken up residence down the hall in unrented apartment number five. Friends try to help. There's Whitey Salvador, another DJ that's been crushing on Heidi. He allows her to stay at his place until she's abducted by faceless Satanists in hospital scrubs. And then there's local historian Francis Matthias, played by Bruce Davison, who finds an ancestral link between Heidi and Reverend Hawthorne and ties the Lords of Salem single to the music the witches were playing back in the 17th century. But Francis is ultimately murdered... The DJs are locked out of the concert hall, and Heidi takes to the stage and gives birth to a squiggling, Cthulhu-like Antichrist as the encore to the Lords of Salem set. The next day, news media reports that the concert's literal captive audience of 32 women committed naked, ritualized suicide, and that Heidi has vanished, presumably along with Rob Zombie's clout, as credits roll. Okay, so I did get it right. Yeah, I, I guess. What, what what were you confused on? Everything and nothing. <laughs> it was a very zen experience. I guess the only thing I would contend is, was that heroin she was smoking or crack? I just don't know. Well, let's discuss it. Yeah, I agree. You know, Rob Zombie's simple, really. I mean, let's not give him too much credit here. I think that his movies have all existed to punish. All of his stories are trippy, psychedelic. They exist in two worlds, both modern day and, you know, the 70s, usually some kind of grungy past era. I, I, I do feel like at the end of the day, it's not what they're about. It's how they make you feel. And I don't think Rob Zombie feel like he's done his job unless he's made you feel kind of gross. I didn't feel that with any of this. I really just felt confusion. I wanted to be scared. I wanted to jump. I mean, again, a great tale of a horror movie for me is if I want to leave the lights on all the way to bed. And House of a Thousand Corpses kind of squeams me out about going down country roads now and stopping and talking to country bumpkins when we're out. But I didn't find any scary or gross in this movie whatsoever. But I think this is a different type of horror film. If House of a Thousand Corpses was his throwback to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this was his throwback to The Omen and Rosemary's Baby and that kind of psychological suspense horror where the point isn't to make you jump, the point is to skeeve you out and make you fear the devil. Yeah, I think it's two movies at one, and both of them were in vogue in the 60s and 70s. One is, yeah, that kind of devil baby, you're pregnant with something awful kind of thing that, yeah, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, what have you. I also think we've just got to deal with the fact that it's about witches. And maybe part of the problem, the uphill battle, certainly for me, is witches, I've never seen them successfully done on screen unless you go back to The Wizard of Oz. I mean, truly, are witches scary? Have they ever been scary? It's quite an undertaking to say you're going to frame it around this whole story. I mean, if we're to understand anything about the battle that's going on here, it's the fact that there's these Christians that founded the village versus these musical witches who, as I said in the plot summary, are, I guess, plotting a comeback. Well, if you want to look at, you know, movies about witches, we did cover Silent Night, Deadly Night, Initiation. <laughs> yes, which not only is a Christmas movie, but yes, is all about, yeah, Wiccan, lesbian, evil. 
which I actually saw some ties to this movie with, <laughs> truthfully. The old lady lesbian witch cult and the neophyte who they're impregnating and gives birth to some squiggling thing. Tell me there's not parallels. Yeah, there's a worm in there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know what? Rob Zombie knows horror movies, and he loves Z-grade horror movies. I'm sure he's seen that movie. And whether it was in his thoughts, I cannot say. He does not admit to it. But it wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that it was an influence. As far as scary witches, the only one I can go to is Blair Witch, which, in its theatrical release, did get a good jump out of me. When it comes to scary witches, really the only one I can think of that ever got a jump out of me was Blair Witch. When I saw oh, yeah. that as theatrical, seeing, I just have to say that all the screaming and jerky camera really did get to me, but I can't think of any other ones. Uh, bed knobs and broomsticks and things like that, not so much. I really don't find witches scary. I didn't find these witches scary. I, I, I found them slightly fascinating because there were these weird, naked, old, wrinkly ladies with a pet goat who sat around a campfire singing awful songs. But I, I just don't think witches have the scare power maybe they did in, let's say, like, 1860? I mean, you give Shakespeare, those witches from Macbeth are fucking frightening. But, yeah, in modern cinema, I can't think of too much. Did Bewitched ruin it for us? <laughs> Some of it is that, yeah, witches are campy. Uh, you know, we think of the green skin, Technicolor, Wizard of Oz. We think of... TV charmed and, you know, I, I think that the idea, the conception has been taken back to being Wiccan as opposed to witches. Uh, there is a, a, a big difference and I, I, it's something I learned a lot about. I actually was on vacation this summer and stopped by Salem and I did a lot more research than I think Rob Zombie did <laughs> as far as what this is all about. I mean, are you driving around with a coexist bumper sticker now? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. But I do want to just put it out there. Among the many things that Rob Zombie gets wrong here is that the town of Salem that he set his story was not where the Salem witch trials happened. So, oops, you got the wrong location. <laughs> and second of all... <laughs> That's a pretty big first of all. <laughs> so nothing ever happened there. Yeah, there's no history in this town. That It's funny, there's actually a town called Danvers, and they're like, oh, we don't want all these tourists storming us and bugging us about it. So they actually invented this town of Salem that they could send people to where there's all the cheesy wax museums and you can do all of the witchy stuff you want to that's campy and silly. But the village itself has been renamed to protect the people that live there from constantly having to deal with this true past crime, which also should be pointed out. It's mentioned in the movie. Bruce Davison does give short shrift to it. Only 22 people. Nobody was burned. So that whole thing never happened. A lot of the conception here is just kind of off. Rob Zombie is making witches as he is seen in the movies. He is not trying to tell a story that was true to life and has been neglected by history. I think that should be pointed out right off the bat. He's trying to make Suspiria, if you will. He's not trying to tell the story of Salem Village. I guess that whole Danvers thing worked until the internet, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't looked it up, but it is just kind of a funny quirk there. We just presume it's called Salem. This must have been where it happened. This is where they have the ice cream shop with the witch-shaped heads and, you know, all the 
silliness, but nope, that is a tourist trap. Literally, it is constructed as a tourist trap. So he has set this story in a world of falsity to begin with. Well, that said, I'm not going to judge Rob Zombie based on his historical inaccuracies. I didn't come to this looking for a A&E documentary on the Salem Witch Trials. I'm happy to know that they weren't in Salem. I didn't know that. But in the end, that's not going to damn this film for me. No, and nor should it. I, you know, I'm perfectly fine with going with whatever his conception is. But it was just kind of funny in light of this. Having gone to Salem after seeing this movie in theaters the first time, or the second time, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, having actually seen the historical Salem, it was an eye-opener here. But a lot of this backstory isn't even in the film. This is where the book is most greatly different from what we see in the film. We get a good 30 pages of the Reverend versus Margaret on the page. And we actually see them persecuted. We see the Sid Haig character come and grab them and take them to be tried before this reverend. And I think some of it got filmed, but the actor was very, very sick. He ended up dying. They ended up recasting him. And rather than going back and shooting the scenes that they lost, they just shoot what we see in the intro here, which is a guy scribbling on a piece of paper saying, oh, their music makes me crazy. (laughs) The music does make me crazy. I like the music that this starts off on, this low, thrumming bass, watching it in the home theater with a couple of subwoofers going, it makes your feelings rattle. It's definitely got a Rob Zombie feel to that music, even if it is a little bit atonal. And this opening scene with, yeah, all the naked hags and the goat and the fire, I'm going to give Rob Zombie some credit right up front because he's Rob fucking Zombie. I'm sure if he wanted a cadre of sexy witches, he could have found some groupies at his concert and say, all right, you're all going to be naked in my movie and you're all going to get SAG cards. And Literally? Well, yeah. They had- <laughs> oh, these women got their SAG cards, all right. They are proudly showing their SAG cards. Yeah, exactly. I want to just say, I guess kudos for... Showing what I would imagine real nudist colonies to be like rather than the (laughs) sexy Playboy Mansion videos that are popularized in pornography. Yes, clearly nobody at the studio was giving notes about the nudity content. There's a lot of it, and none of it is salacious, or at least not to my liking. I I think that that is some of the true horror here. Yes, is indeed. That, no, I, I think it's intentional. I really think that he wants to overwhelm us with the female form past its prime. And I I just got a question. Are those bodysuits? I think they are. I think these are leathery, wrinkly bodysuits because I've never seen naked grannies outside of The Shining, but I gotta think skin don't fold like that. Yeah, it seemed unnatural. I mean, they're kind of dirty, and it was just hard to know where skin and makeup kind of blend. But I would like to believe that Meg Foster, who was a striking woman in the 80s, doesn't exactly look like that. Guys, do you not realize who Meg Foster is? I watched her in a movie over and over and over when I was a young girl. Not Which one? Bell. He-Man, Masters of the Universe. She was Evil Lynn. Oh, I didn't know her from that. She's in They Live as well. She has these yes. striking eyes. She, she has does. the craziest eyes ever. She was in a production of The Scarlet Letter that we watched in English class. And even though it was hideous, I've never forgotten her eyes. Yeah, she is scary. It's is great casting, actually. And this cast is filled with people that you used to sort of know. 
And actually, Arnie, we saw her just about a month ago at Flashback Weekend at the horror convention. Remember when we got to the hotel on a Friday night and there's this really old, haggard-looking lady with blue eyes just wandering confused by the elevators? Yes. That was Meg Foster. Because I saw her later the next day on the convention floor looking just as confused. She was super-duper skinny, so I'm thinking she wasn't wearing a body sock guessed on the wrinkles <laughs> that I'm seeing on her face and neck. I think that the way they were able to get away with a lot of this nudity is, I do believe, especially in the case of the old, ganky, nasty witches from the 1600s, those are suits. Those are body socks. It just didn't move real. It didn't reflect real. It didn't come off as real. If that's real, Marjorie, we're going to have some problems in about 30 years. <laughs> All hail plastic surgery. <laughs> yeah, if that's what's going to happen to my body, can we start saving up now because I don't want it to look like that? I, I do think those are some sort of body socks or something because it just looked like somebody wadded up some tissue paper and threw it in the corner. I want to say I think it's a mixture, though. I do definitely think some of it was real nudity. The ones who are just off on the sides, you know, the ones who you see wiggle and jiggle, I think those are real. I think that the primary ones, the lead ones who we give the focus to, I think those are overly grotesque suits. Yeah, I, I think whenever they take center stage, later Margaret appears in a vision in a hallway, and we're just looking at her for a long period of time. It was long enough for me to really study and be like, no, that can't, that can't be. It's not bad. I mean, the fact that we're debating it is at least a testament to they make it grotesque enough, but I do think that they've used some makeup manipulation here to make the women's bodies even more horrific. I feel real bad for that goat, because he had to look at that shit. <laughs> that poor goat's, like, scarred for his little goat life. Oh, he was the happiest one on set, apparently. Rob Zombie. In the commentary, he doesn't really talk about why he does anything, but he does talk extensively about how hard it is for him to do the things that he envisions. And he was talking about how the goat was much easier to work with than the women because of the cold. Not because that they weren't game for his vision, but because they were filming basically in, in the middle of the night, very cold temperatures in nothing, or practically nothing, and it was just very difficult. At one point, people were fainting and passing out and going into hypothermia. I would not do that for scale. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but we do start here in the 1600s with this witch ritual. But then we jump forward to, and yeah, I do want to ask, is this present day? Yes. Are you sure? Yes, 100%. They have cell phones. Absolutely. They have cell phones, and the big thing that we noticed was the cars had the little satellite divots on it, but they also have DJs who work at radio stations. At night. Zoo crews. Uh, very confusing. <laughs> I've never heard of a nighttime zoo crew, for one thing. <laughs> Except for, like, Venus Flytrap and his evening radio show. So you can understand my confusion here. And it really reminded me of, like, that Jimmy Fallon Saturday Night Live skit where he was all the voices. Like, oh, my God, you guys, man in the box, get back in the box. Because I don't know why guests would come on this goddamn show and be interviewed. <laughs> because they're constantly interrupted in whatever they're talking about with sound effects. And you guys are pervs. And all this stuff <laughs> that they have two guests on the show. The first is... I believe ostensibly one of the members of the Lords, right? No, it's not. Although it's confusing. I, I agree. It, it creates confusion 
by having this character in such close proximity to the discovery of the vinyl in the box. But, no, his name's Count Gorgon, and he's part of Leviathan the Fleeing Serpent is the name of the band. They have a music video that they kind of play very, very briefly, and it's Rob Zombie and this guy kind of just doing uh, death metal. Okay, so when he's sitting there and talking about hailing Satan and all that, he's not involved in the witchy plot. No, Rob said that he wanted the character to be ignorant of what was going to happen, and yet you would come back to his words and see how prophetic that they would end up being. As far as the basis of this, I got the sense that this is kind of Stern, right? I mean, Stern's still on the air. He's on satellite, right? Uh, Sherry Moon's Robin Quivers, right? She's just the kind of token chick that sits back and watches the boys be crude. I'm not a Stern fan, but... To my knowledge, what little of Stern I've heard was when they broadcast his radio stuff on television, like late night on E! And it wasn't a zoo crew with all the boing sound effects and everything else that was going on here. This felt like those morning DJs you want to hunt down with a sawed-off shotgun. And I don't know why they'd be on at night, and I don't know why a book author, ostensibly a smart one, would ever want to be interviewed there. Are book sales that shitty? See, I was trying (laughs) to figure out their format of this radio station. I I don't get it. Were they hard rock? They played Rush? What the hell? This is really what made me think it was a period piece. When they step outside, there's a giant banner on the side of the building. Jay Giles' band. Yeah, Jay Giles' band. I can only presume that Rob Zombie's a big fan of their theme, The Fright Night. (laughs) So I thought maybe this was the early 80s. I never necessarily saw cell phones. I saw portable phones. I didn't know if maybe they were cordless. I never saw anyone make a call on the street. Yeah, I I definitely took it to mean that it was the current day, 2012. I mean, they're on the internet, for Christ's sake, to get the information. They're definitely using modern technology. But because it's Rob Zombie, the characters that he likes to feature are people with a fetish for the past. You know, just because we have digital downloads doesn't mean that she wouldn't have a record player, that she wouldn't cherish a piece of vinyl coming in a mysterious box. I get the sense that they're an odd bunch, that they play what they want, they do what they want, and it's been successful enough, it's niche enough, that they've built an audience. Sherry Moon Zombie, back again, five for five. He kills her, and she still comes back in Halloween 2. Here she is again. I'm gonna go out there, as a person who loved her personification of baby in House of a Thousand Corpses, wow, girl can't act, and it's got to be one of those situations where when you're directing your wife and you need to tell her to go take an acting class, you realize that might lead to counseling or divorce, (laughs) and... (laughs) Having her here makes this film feel like all of the worst parts of independent film. And I mean like student film where you just grab whatever friends you have and put them in. It's just his friends happen to be Sherry Moon and Ken Foray. Yeah, Sherry Moon. I mean, this is the movie to prove it, right? It's a constant knock. Oh, he just cast her because he thinks she's hot. I mean, they've said that since the very first music video. She has ridden his dreadlocks to fame or whatever she has resembling fame. But this movie, she's central. She's never had a bigger part, right? I mean, this is a star vehicle. She's never had that before. That's correct. This is, I think, the biggest movie. She's been in the biggest part, and it falls flat. Yeah. Yeah, it's three for three here. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement. She's critical to the movie, and she's very bad. 
Yeah, she cannot emote. I don't like anything they've done with her character. I don't get the dreads. I'm guessing she just has them. I don't think that it has anything to do to help define her character. All the tattoos on her, they make a big deal when Bruce Davidson's in the radio station about how he's staring at her tattoos. I'm like, are these mystical tattoos that are going to save her? Did she like the pattern because of some long instinct? And I mean, I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. Clive Barker has a character, Harry Demore, who has tattoos that ward off evil spirits. And so when they make a big deal about her tattoos, I'm like, why is there ink all over her tits? There's no reason. All of this is incidental and inconsequential. There's no character here. And she is as vacuous and empty as can be. The only plus I can give her is she's almost like one of those old Kenner figures from the 70s where they intentionally would make the faces blank so you would project yourself on there. Maybe you can project yourself into Sherry Moon somehow because there's nothing there that's coming back. It's like a vampire with no reflection. Part of this movie is a psychological thriller. I mean, it could be said that once things get going, you could make the case that none of it's happening in reality. This chick is going crazy and she's on drugs. And if that's a story that you're playing with, you want to have a very powerful actress. You know, you want an Ellen Burstyn, a Mia Farrow, a Lee Rimmick. You want someone that can anchor your horror movie, give it credence, give it believability. With Sherry Moon, yeah, I mean, the problems are multitudinous. I mean, she doesn't even have an East Coast accent. She's supposedly the descendant of the founder of the town. She doesn't even sound like she came from there. I just think she's incredibly bland, and on one hand, I applaud Rob Zombie for... Maybe she's his muse. That's the term he uses, is she is his muse. <laughs> um, the bad muse. Maybe he's just so kind to her and so in love with her that he can't say, baby, you can't act. I can't put you in my next movie. But I think he's blind to that. And she doesn't ruin the movie. She just really doesn't make me care about the character. I don't get that, oh, God, she's doing drugs again. I, I didn't give a shit. She just doesn't have any emotion, any acting ability. She has a very flat tone, and it's the same thing throughout the entire movie. No matter what scene it is, she's got the same tone going on. She's confronted with a lot of weird stuff in this movie. It should be said, this movie is all about being thrust into bizarre, unpredictable moments. We're always going to look to our main character to see how they're absorbing it. I mean, we need to know what she thinks of it in order to know what we're going to think of it. And I swear to God, at one point, she walks into a room and she sees this neon cross. She's holding her hands up. I didn't know whether she was warming them. I didn't know whether she was praying. (laughs) It literally just looked like she walked in the room and Rob said, okay, honey, hold up your hands. And she does. I mean, it's a non-performance. Not only is she not a good actress, but we don't even know how she feels. And I don't think you have to be a great actress to convey feeling, but she doesn't even do that. Yeah, there's so many problems with this because she is part of this Triple H radio show with Herman and Herman. And the problem is, I think one of the Hermans, the white one, has a crush on her. He's called Whitey. Yeah, Whitey. But does she have feelings for him? Is she stringing him along? I don't know how she relates to any of her characters with one sole exception. She loves the dog. I believe that maybe Sherry Moon Zombie's real dog, because the only time her eyes light up, the only time I get a genuine smile from her or anything, is when that dog is on scene. Yeah, she did love the dog. There's a scene at the very end, after it's all said and done, of her playing with the dog. Why? I think because it's their fucking dog. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't hear whether it was the dog or not, but the dog really is named Troy. It is a friend's dog. They didn't get really... It was a trained dog. I mean, I don't think it was their dog. So it was a star dog. It was a Hollywood dog, <laughs> but it was through a friend's. It was through a connection. There was some kind of relationship that, that went beyond the movie with this animal. And you're right. She's not bad with the dog. If only the dog's trainer could have trained Sherry. Yeah, it's every scene. You know, like I said, you really want to know what's going on with this character. It's all about this character deteriorating. She disappears from this movie. What's so strange about it is that it should be a quest for her to figure out what's going on. Who are the Lords of Salem? When she gets a box at the front desk that has a vinyl and this mysterious song in it, it should be about her wanting answers. They give all of that stuff to Bruce Davidson. He's the one doing the the investigation, she literally just kind of sits around and waits for the movie to be over. He can act. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you actually felt his sense of urgency. Uh, The lover's wife, I think, really came through. I mean, this is the guy who played that senator in X-Men 1-2, and I saw him on Knight Rider 2000. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. I've seen him at conventions. I like this guy. I was excited to see him in here. It's a shame he has such a piss-nothing role, especially since I think, man, he reminds me of a real author I know who has white hair and a white beard and is on book tours all the time and I've had a real chance to hang out with and get to know pretty well. And so I'm like, this is just like that author I know. He's really in that author role. He's my hero in this movie. And funny, he wasn't supposed to be in this. If you read the book, this character is much, much older and much more sour. And he pushes back. You asked, why would any author go under this radio show? He was duped. He went on because his publicist told him to, and he gets very indignant on the air here. Once the actor, and I don't know who they had lined up, fell through, Bruce Davidson, I think, came in and and he didn't even read for it. They just gave him the part. I think within 24 hours of him being called, he was on set. So it was just sort of a happy coincidence. But I agree. He becomes a much more likable and proactive character to Sherry's passive, meek, inscrutable non-character. It was actually Bruce Dern who was going to play the Bruce Davison part. Oh, how confusing. I know! <laughs> I guess he just literally went down the list. It was alphabetical. Hey, it's like the other witch series, Bewitched. They went from one Darren to the other Darren. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so therein lies another problem with this movie, is that everything is hinging on Sherry, but, in fact, the character that we like is a supporting character that was rewritten. And to me, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that he would be doing the investigative work, because he wrote a book about Salem. He's supposed to be the expert. He should be the character that she goes to to get answers. But for whatever reason, Sherry Moon does not have any curiosity about what's befalling her. She gets a record. I don't, you know, it sounds weird, but does she want to know where it came from? Does she want to know why it makes her get headaches and have visions of witches licking battery-powered babies? Does she have any curiosity at all? I really was hoping that Bruce Davison's character would have had a more glorious death and maybe hung on for a while, but that was over so quick from when he discovered what he thought was going on with the notes and the music, and then he went to go see her, and then they killed him in no time with a frying pan. I can tell you guys exactly what this is. This is just a reprise of the sheriff character from House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. When the four get kidnapped... 
the sheriff is there, and he seems like he's going to be the savior, right? I mean, a couple of them are already dead. The sheriff's investigating. The sheriff interrogates Captain Spaulding, and he goes out there to the house looking for these kids, and then he's off very quickly and brutally. And I think this is the exact same story. You have this guy going through the exact same investigative steps. He's interested, yeah, because he has this book. Now, what you're saying about him being indignant, that's from the novel, because it certainly isn't on the screen. Yeah, it's all from the novel. He's older, he doesn't understand anything. He's actually offended by the music, and it plays out more or less the same way, but they have a subplot about tickets to a a movie screening, and his wife wants him to get it, (laughs) so he has to go back to the radio station, and he's kind of like a a futzy old man, and that the Heidi character is able to have a breakthrough where the other two kind of humiliate him and so there's some kind of relationship that forms but I can't say that it's much more interesting than what we see here just different maybe not more interesting but I do know that zombie had a co-writer with the book he got the writing credit well George Lucas also got writing credit for the novel with Star Wars and he never put pen to paper either so I'm wondering if it was his co-writer who decided maybe we need some glue to make things make a little bit more sense on the page because none of that's on the screen but I'd like to know a few logical questions, like, the record shows up, and it just appears. And I'm good with that, which is, you know, it comes in this ornate box, it's shipped somehow, but... No, it, it should be said, in the book, this was something they didn't get to film. He wanted to film it this way, it's in the book, but it literally just pops up on a security camera. One second, nothing, the next second it's there, they rewind the tape... And it literally just pops up there. I mean, it's very supernatural in its introduction. It's not like someone anonymously dropped it off. It's literally like it emerged out of the shadows. Okay. I didn't get that from the movie. I didn't necessarily care. I would like to know who the Lords of Salem's PR agent is who's contacting the radio station saying, hey, we're going to do a concert. We want to give away tickets on your show. Because... I feel like I was hit upside the head with a frying pan when they're like, there's a concert and we have free tickets. How the fuck did that happen? (laughs) Because they played it on Smash It or Trash It. (laughs) Tuesday night, she plays this tune to see how people are going to respond, and 32 women literally piss themselves. (laughs) Calling it a tune is a bit of a stretch. It sounds like my baby brother playing at an organ. Perhaps calling it a tone instead of a tune. Yeah. Say what you want about this movie. I love this song. On the soundtrack, it's called The Lord's Theme. And I, yeah, it's like a crazy accordion kind of, there's some kind of bombast to it that I just, I really groove to. I think it's awesome. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you remember the tune from Fire Walk With Me, but there's a, about a five minute scene with Laura Palmer at a strip club, kind of coked out, and this crazy sounding three note kind of repetitious march that just keeps sadly there's only 49 seconds of it so even though i wanted to play it like it was a single it is only 49 seconds of the same three notes here was what i want to know how did the lords of salem get all those people to listen to the radio at all the same time when the song was going to be played during smash it or trash it i mean they really had to study this triple h show for a really long time to find out the pattern to get in for tuesday night smash it or trash it But then they had to ensure that these 32 descendants are actually going to be listened to the radio at that time. It's on at work. I think that's all that we're supposed to understand. These women work at bars. They work at bike shops. They work in... But it's nighttime. It is a nighttime show, so they're all working (laughs) the night shift. And they're all the legacy people of the Salem witches. Yes. That makes no sense. Yeah, that these people founded the town, and the best they can do for themselves is, yeah, night shift bike shop. (laughs) 
I could understand the smash it or trash it, why she'd have a record and put it on there, because I used to work at a radio station, and the DJs were all about the local music and the local bands and getting them all promoted and all that. I agree with you, Stuart, that when the music started, I really liked this theme. By the end of the movie, when they've looped this 49 seconds for 90 minutes, I'm agreeing with Herman that it's giving me a fucking headache. You know, another big departure from the book is that this actually, hearing it in this first time, when it goes out over the radio, causes these women to engage in acts of murder. They wanted to film it again. They ran out of time, only 22 days. So Zombie just kind of went, fuck it. And it didn't get in there. Maybe this movie is rather light on kills. Maybe it would have helped the film to have some killing here. But what you would have seen is after these women peed themselves, stopped in their tracks, they started picking up power tools and cutlery. One went into the bedroom and carved up her boyfriend after it drove her to have incredible sex. Would that have helped your interest in the movie? Where are you at? By the time that this is all happening, I think we're literally about half an hour into the movie. It's been a lot of mood here. I'm sure you're confused, but are you intrigued half hour in? Did you need killing? Were you waiting for something like that to happen? And is it wrong that zombie withholds with murder? I didn't need the killing necessarily, but what I was hoping for, what I really needed was some sort of suspense. I just wasn't getting it. I didn't care about Heidi. I wasn't feeling the empathy for this recovering drag addict, which, you know, you can feel that. And I'm not saying that I don't, but I'm just saying for that particular character, I wasn't feeling anything. I didn't feel that she was truly tortured by these visions she kept having. My biggest thrill was when I said, oh, the sisters, they're all witches. You just watch. Arnie goes, well, you're probably right. And I was. But at this point, I had become bored, not due to lack of killing. Let's make that clear. That it does not make a great horror movie, but it helps. But it just wasn't interesting. And I'll agree mostly, but say I knew this one was going to be a slow burn coming in. I'd heard the references to the 70s slow horror. And as soon as I got the DVD, I posted it to our Facebook page as a little bit of a tease. And whew, the feedback from the listeners was scathing. <laughs> So I knew going in that this wasn't going to be so much about story and that it was going to be a little bit slower, a little bit lower key than the previous four films he's done. At the half hour mark when this record's going on, I am intrigued, but I'm also a little bit turned off by his production. I'm like, I'm curious where this is going to go. How is this going to tie together? Why is there a neon Jesus in the witch's apartment? I'm confused. I want to know the answers. I'm liking some of the retro casting. It's, you know, we've called it before that zombies kind of like the Tarantino of really schlock horror by bringing in actresses from Howling and Cujo and Rocky Horror in these roles. But I'm really wanting to see him go somewhere with it. And so at a half hour, yeah, I'm I'm still there. It's honestly the second half hour where it starts to fall apart for both Heidi and me. Yeah, I'm with it through Tuesday. I wanted to say this is my style of horror. I generally like the slow burn. I like atmospherics. I like not knowing what's going on. A David Lynch, a Roman Polanski, someone that is not afraid to have people in the dark. I think that can be suspenseful. It's the best kind of suspense when you have no idea what's happening and yet you're scared. 
I can't say that I was scared here, but I at least saw what he was going for, and I was intrigued, I think is the word. That, yes, we know something is up. In the book, it's less clear so early that her landlady and her sisters are in on it. But here, even though it's kind of a given, when she comes home and she has wine with them and they try to read her hand for her future and her fate and all of that, I see something that is intriguing. I see a movie that I want to finish. After Tuesday, after we get the setup, as it were, I don't feel like anything really comes out of it. And it isn't helpful watching the commentary of this movie and hearing that Rob Zombie essentially had this on shuffle. That there were scenes he was like, eh, let's put this later. Let's move this earlier. Nothing actually builds in this movie. Anything that we see could be put in at any time in the movie and it would not change the feel of that movie. You don't get a progression that a woman is growing mad or that she's deteriorating and becoming psychologically imbalanced. You just get the sense that it's weirdness all week, and for whatever reason, on Friday, it's cracked it. Well, I'm going to actually defend him a little bit, because maybe in editing, he decided this helped build a progression. I did notice things got a little bit crazier as things went on. I mean, it is really on Wednesday when things start to go awry. It's after the witches have tried to indoctrinate her with some wine, just like Silent Night, Deadly Night Initiation. Yeah, and she went to an AA meeting. Is this supposed to be the first step here? Like, how serious was she about sobriety? Because she was acting drunk on Monday, and she apparently didn't even... She was just walking home from the radio station. I blame Moon Zombie for that. Yeah, I I think that they had thoughts about maybe she was drinking and then they realized, oh no, we want to have her a recovered alcoholic. It seemed like they didn't have a clear conception about what this story was and that it just sort of happened to be that, yes, she's a sober person and now the witches are going to be the one to get her off program. She always has an air of tipsiness about her, though. So, you know what I mean? Like, her baby was clearly drunken, but that, you know, she wasn't drunk, but that character was like that. So, I think Sherry Moon Zombie's acting ability is slight drunkenness. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that addiction is the thesis of this film. I think Zombie has a message, and that message is that the demon in the bottle or the demon in the needle will kill you. And I think that what we see here is her descent into Satan Baby is paralleled by her descent back into drugs. It's a really loose thread, but one of the last lines we hear is some preacher saying, if we lose our battle with temptation and choose to ride upon the goat, we will be a wash of the burning rivers of the dead, the rotting flesh of the damned will rot our nostrils. I think this is all about addiction. I think that that is a a reading that we're encouraged to think could be there. It isn't that movie for me, but I could see, (laughs) I could see why you might think that it is. And in times, I kind of wished it would play more on that level here, but it's hard to buy that someone could unravel within three days. I mean, she does not even buy the drugs until Thursday night. And by Saturday, she's giving birth to the Antichrist. (laughs) A real addict, a real hardcore person could smoke a little heroin and be just fine. Could go into work and not cry in the bathroom stall. Could fake it and nobody would know. Right, but if you look at it as the demons around her swell with her desire for the drugs. There's somebody in the 
apartment down the hallway when she's jonesing and her partners are already afraid that she's back on the drugs but she's like no i'm sober i'm sober i'm going to a meeting i'm going to try to stay sober she has some wine that's when the demons start to really hit her and then by thursday she's doing the drugs it's a rapid descent no doubt and I think it's really poorly told, if that's what he's going for. But out of this whole thing, if I'm trying to get a message out of this, what I'm getting is addiction. Yeah, I, I think that you'd need a better actress, and I think you'd need a longer time frame. You'd need months instead of a week to watch anybody. I don't care who you are. No one is going to be at the rock bottom after being fine on Monday by Saturday. I just... I don't buy that as a, a, a believable arc of collapse. It just, it doesn't make sense here. And there's just, there's not enough time. But I wish the movie played that way. They certainly are going after that. There is the addiction movie, and then there's the devil baby movie. And maybe it is the same story, but it, they do start to merge around the time that we get to Apartment 5. This one's a little bit less coherent for me. The... Giving the priest a blowjob, the neon cross scene you mentioned. When we get to see the demon baby, I think that's on Friday. He kind of looks like one of the chickens from Peter Gabriel's video. (laughs) That's not unintentional. Rob Zombie in the commentary said he wanted to look like a cross between a baby and a turkey. I think he's successful. (laughs) I don't know why he wanted that, but I think he successfully got it. It did look like a little bald turkey there. And this is where Sherry Moon even kind of laughed at him on set. That on Friday, when the witches finally get their calming tea and are ushering her into the cathedral that is apartment five, and the baby's there waiting, he was like, I got a really creative way of having him impregnate you. He's going to have his intestines pop out, and you're going to hold them, and they're going to wriggle. And Zombie even said it was hard to get a take where she wasn't laughing. She didn't buy this, and she doesn't sell us on this as a possible way of getting pregnant by the Antichrist. How do you get pregnant by the Antichrist? Well, Rosemary's Baby showed a very old-fashioned way of doing it. We'd have to cover that movie sometime. I I am a fan. I definitely think if we had a turkey, we needed a baster at the very least to impregnate her with the Antichrist. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering who was going to knock her up as well, or if she was already knocked up. But in truth, what did I get from this, from her very last vision where she comes out on stage and there's the 32 naked bodies, and they've dolled her up like an evil Virgin Mary, I think this is an immaculate conception. Yeah, he didn't want to do a sex scene. I think that that is very evident. By making the choice of having it being this small creature that never gets that close to her. I don't know, what is he going for? Is it okay that we're laughing? I saw this in the theater, and I'm telling you, everyone wanted to take it seriously, but you could hear the derision. You could feel the audience turn. Uh, that When the witches put her back to bed, they tuck her in, and then the little baby walks up and just kind of stands there at the bedside. There were snickers. There was At this point, there's no way to take what we're seeing as horror. This is comedy, right? No, I honestly think that <laughs> Rob Zombie is a very smart man. I truthfully believe that. I've seen him in interviews. I believe that he has a great sense of intelligence. What I don't believe he has is the ability to laugh at himself. I think this, to him, is supposed to be a deeply emotional moment. If you're laughing, I say you're laughing at it, not with it. I don't know. I think that some of the movies that are influential on this thing, I mean, I was thinking a lot about David Lynch. I was thinking a lot about Dario Argento. 
I think that they have absurd moments that you laugh, and it's a nice way of breaking the tension. It doesn't demean all the parts that are scary, but I think they definitely are comical. And I, I just have to believe, I have to believe that Rob Zombie can't expect me to take this turkey baby as a serious conception of Satan. I mean, that's just, it's, it's ridiculous. I'll agree with the latter half. Uh, the little fat midget was too much. Too much. That pot belly, I giggled. I'm sorry. And I like some humor with my stuff, but I, I take it this is supposed to be a serious movie and there weren't any hearty har-hars off to the side. And I laughed at that part inappropriately, and I'm sorry. I definitely think that when you mention David Lynch and such, there's a certain style of absurdity that comes through as intentional. And maybe Zombie was going for that, but if so, I guess that means I'm going to have to reevaluate my thinking of him as he'd be as skilled as a director as his wife is as an actress. <laughs> well, I do think this is going to be a referendum on whether Rob Zombie, you know, he embodies horror. God knows that whole shtick has been a success for him. He legally changed his last name to fucking Zombie. <laughs> yeah, as, as a rock image, he's carried it. But does he make movies? Is he a film director? I really do feel like for the first 30 minutes, I was going with it. I wasn't going to say it was a perfect movie, but I, I felt like, yeah, I like what you like, and I'm going to nod my head to it. It's like a cover band. They're playing a song I really like, but at this point, there's distortion, there's feedback... I don't think that that person knows how to play the guitar. I really, a lot of problems now that we're getting into Thursday, Friday. Uh, just a lot of things that feel disconnected, that there's no escalation. I mean, how many shots of dollying down that hall are they going to throw at us? How many, you know, old movie footage clips are they going to throw in for no reason? I just feel like Zombie is experimenting about what works and what doesn't and then has no filter to edit. He needs a really strong editor if he's going to do all of this crazy shit. I'm going to go out there and say, based on what you said, I think very heavily that he not only didn't get the shots of the peeing women killing their boyfriends, but that there's a lot more footage that was left cut. Because there's moments where Ken Foray is starting to get upset and wondering what's going on with Heidi. I haven't seen her miss her work. I haven't seen her do anything flakier than usual. She's acting the same to me on Thursday as she was on Monday, but everybody's pissed off. I'm not getting a lot of the stuff here. When she goes into the concert at the end and locks them outside, I'm more confused about what happened. And at first, I took it as when you see these characters, there's a lot of over-talk dialogue with music and sound effects in the background. You're not supposed to hear every word. But by the end, there's no characters here anywhere other than Bruce Davison who got killed with a frying pan. Yeah, agreed. And that's not a knock against the movies in general. I mean, yes, I'm someone that likes story and narrative, and movies are always better when we're invested in the people that are experiencing the horror. I like to identify with victims, but strangeness works for me, too. If you're doing something original and fresh, I'm going with it. The problem is, all the stuff feels really recycled, particularly of Kubrick. That's what I couldn't get over, is how many... We're going to be covering The Shining very, very soon here, and everything from the fetishizing of the naked old women to that those hallway pans, the cathedral, the tone, everything about this movie feels like he desperately would love for you to mistake this for Eyes Wide Shut meets The Shining. I can see the 70s style, where it's slow, the long, drawn-out scenes... 
and the characters do fall flat. Whitey and Herman. At the end where she locks them out, I kind of felt like that whole part was glossed over. And it just seemed like all of a sudden like, oh, hey, she is in there all by herself now having a devil baby. It would seem very abrupt. I'd like to know why only women took the free concert tickets. And only the 32 women that were descendants. Nobody had nothing else to do in Salem on a Saturday night? Yeah, that's what doesn't really make any sense is why are the only descendants female? I get that maybe the record has a certain reaction to women. If you're going to go with the conception that witches are strictly women, there are no warlocks, they're all women, and that this is their music, this gets them to go pagan again. I'll go with that. But yeah, why is the entire town only women? I mean... That doesn't really make any sense. Well, I think there were descendants that were men, but men can't be witches. So only the descendants of the witches were the ones called. Yeah, perhaps that's it. I think in the book it's grander, but I think you'd be surprised at how little fleshed out it is there. That This is largely the same thing, whether you go to the original story, which is I think what the book is, what he wanted to film, or what's up on screen, it's vague. It's intentionally supposed to be weird. I mean, Zombie said that. Nobody was going to let him make this movie. This was his one chance. If he was going to get a total pass to do whatever he wanted, he was going to take full advantage of that by being completely off the wall, non-linear, and provoking the audience with a story that does not come together. I think it's by design that we're left confused. But is that a good design? Marjorie Stewart, are you going to trash or smash Lords of Salem? Marjorie. Trash. I loved Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween, which to me is a sacred classic. I think it did a really great job. Halloween 2, I go back and forth on it. I can kind of see its genius, and other times, like, yeah, there's really not any there. I think he's a smart man, and I wonder if he just doesn't have his vision complete as to how he wants to embody it. Like, he might have all these great ideas swirling around in his head, but getting them onto the big screen is not working out. But I'm very curious, because his next movie is a sports movie. Theoretically, he was also supposed to do The Blob. We'll see what happens now that this has actually come out. <laughs> you think you'll get another movie? I don't. Stuart. It's not as bad as Halloween 2. I mean, that's the biggest compliment that I can give it, which is remarkably similar. If you take Michael Myers out of that movie, it was also a weird, nonlinear story about a woman going crazy. And I think that this is better. Partly because he's just working with materials that I find more intriguing. I like the vibe. I like Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, Kubrick. These are things that I really love. So seeing someone emulate that, I'm cool with it. But the witch movie that I most think about when I watch this movie is Wizard of Oz, and specifically The Man Behind the Curtain. Rob Zombie's exposed at this point. He is not a storyteller. He has no stories to tell. He is someone that can only play other people's material. And I think that that is awesome for an epic music video. God knows this would rival Thriller for greatest horror rock video if you cut this down to the 15 minutes that it should probably be. It would be cool. You know, DJ gets crazy record, goes off the deep end, turns into Star-Eyed Babe. I mean, I think that's Ozzy shot in the dark. If you've ever seen that music video, I think that's literally, I think this is a bigger budget version of Ozzy Osbourne's Shot in the Dark. But Shot in the Dark is not a movie. This is not a movie. At feature length, it is a chore to sit through. And any goodwill that he's built up about being a stylish, 
atmospheric mood maker. It's totally exposed at this point. It's embarrassing at this point. I hope that this is Rob Zombie's last movie in the horror genre because I think that he's done everything that he can do and it's just not enough. Not recommend for the movie or the book. I'm going to go three for three on the not recommend. I admire him for what he tried to do. And like you, Stuart, I'll give this film the first half hour. And I like some of the weird fucking imagery. When she gives birth to that Cthulhu baby, as you called it, great name for it, by the way, I was going with it. The blowjob for the priest dream sequence, okay. Worse than Halloween 2. Oh, I'm so torn on that one because it's not as ugly as Halloween 2. It's not as repugnant as Halloween 2. I went back and I did a review for the Facebook page of the director's cut of Halloween 2, which is his vision. The only one he'll have released on Blu-ray. The format of choice for movie lovers is his director's cut which makes every character even more toxic and unlikable and nauseating. At least Halloween 2 isn't boring. That's true. It's not. It's ugly and gross, but not boring. And yeah, this one does really, really drag. And at a almost 110-minute running time, man, I really had to struggle to maintain my attention because it just doesn't have the music to keep you going with that rock video vibe. It doesn't have the performances to make you give a shit about the characters. At times, I was really confused, like, what's with the turkey baby? And (laughs) honestly, I think he picked a poor topic. When you have people going, praise Satan, overthrow Jesus, that just feels more than dated to me. It feels lacking of gravitas and understanding. If you're going to make a movie that's about people overthrowing religion, you need to subvert religion in some way more than having an evil immaculate conception. I am going to say it's worse than Halloween 2. Wow. I'm going to say it's his worst film to date. I'm going to say he started with what I consider his best and has kind of gone downhill from there. But that doesn't mean I don't want him to make a film again. I just don't want anyone to ever give him Final Cut again. (laughs) I don't want him to have total creative control. I like his vision. I like his instinct. And I like that he is the Tarantino of horror. But I'd like somebody else there, which sounds like this book had but not in enough power, to keep him on a narrative track. God, I'm almost about to call Rob Zombie the George Lucas of horror. Because when he's completely unfettered, he makes incomprehensible shit. I think that was what he wanted to do. I mean, I really do think he knew he was making something that was going to piss off potentially a segment of his fan base. I mean, that was what he was relishing, was the fact that they'll never let me do this again, and so let me try it. Let me try to make non-narrative filmmaking and see how it goes. The answer? Not very well. (laughs) I think that, again, he's got some style choices that probably would work out if you had someone else doing... The writing and directing or maybe guiding him towards something comprehensible because one thing that was great about House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects is a lot of the imagery. And how about the music that was in Devil's Rejects with the little band that got killed in the hotel, the old people? That was great. Things like that make it awesome. And I 
don't think he was able to pull a lot of that off with this. Well, the thing I've noticed about Rob Zombie is he just doesn't seem to like anyone that's ever on screen. Everything is about torture and punishment and defilement. And for me, I think that that's why I ultimately hold back from all of his movies, really, is that there's just nobody for me to like. Let me ask you guys, one thing I read after I watched this movie, and I just can't see it, is he calls this a spiritual prequel to his Halloween films. How about a what about? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, maybe. I, I, I see a real connection to Halloween 2 in the way that Laurie Strode went crazy to this going crazy. I mean, I guess if you want to say that the witches are the white horse of this movie, then yeah, I guess they are very similar. But I just feel like the influences are very different because he does not have to make a formula slasher movie. He didn't feel pressure to... Yeah, kill anybody, really, until the end. And so, it's a weirdly bloodless thriller. I want to put out there, I don't think that the murders would have helped. If they'd killed all those people in the middle, I think I would have been more confused. Seeing them in a trance by this record after seeing Heidi in a trance by this record actually made sense. It was a pattern. Seeing them go on a psychopathic killing spree and then seeing them return to their normal day jobs with dead boyfriends in their bedroom... That would have actually been a bigger problem for me. My problem isn't that Carnage would fix this. My problem is that Sherry Moon Zombie is no Mia Farrow. Yeah, if there's one thing you wish could change, it's the central casting. It, It really could have made the difference between a pretty solid not recommend and at least a mild not recommend, and and maybe a mild recommend. I mean, if the performance were good enough, I could go on this very disjointed, crazy journey. But why would I... Why would anyone... Why is the devil into her? Why is Whitey into her? Why is Rob Zombie into her? Oh, she's fucking hot. And she finally did the nudity that she wouldn't do as a stripper in Halloween. She was really skinny, like, way too skinny in this role, though. Yeah, I don't think this is a glamour. This She's not really naked in this movie either. She's a couple of ass shots. Now, there's some tit shots in the very first scene. I'm she looking. Pees. When she gets out of bed, she, she sleeps with nothing but her boots on. I do that. You love that. Absolutely, I do. That's why I liked her doing it. Though they kick me. Hmm? Well, we didn't enjoy this, but how did we feel about another Blumhouse film? Head to our archives. We recently reviewed Insidious 2 in theaters and also Insidious 1. You can find those in the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. And really, if you enjoy any of the shows we put out, if you enjoyed this deconstruction of a film that exists to resist being deconstructed, or our discussions of Insidious, the Riddick films, any of the films we do, we encourage you to support our show with donations. We have no sponsors or advertisers. We rely on listeners like you to keep this show going, pay for our bandwidth, pay for everything that we have, the tickets to see Lords of Salem thrice. And right now, we reward donors. We're having our fall donation drive. We're reviewing the Psycho films. All six of them, from the Hitchcock original through the Gus Van Sant remake, including the TV movie Bates Motel, not the new A&E series. No, no, we go to NBC, folks. I've seen them all, and I can guarantee you this much. Every actress in them is better than Sherry Moon Zombie. Olivia Hussey for sure, Lori Petty, and what about the redhead from Head of the Class? 
<laughs> It'll all be discussed. So I do hope you can find the donation funds and join us at Gold Level for all six Psycho films. I'm the fan. I've been wanting to do Hitchcock, and we're finally getting to it. Plus, you'll get all of the Edgar Wright Simon Pegg films as well. Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End, Paul, Attack the Block, all of that at the Gold Level donation. Yes, the Gold Level donation that gets you Psycho is $25 or more if you can't do that much and we understand not everybody can for a silver level donation of ten dollars or more you get all the edgar wright simon Pegg stuff so that's five podcasts for ten dollars or 11 podcasts for 25 dollars all the details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com well, I hope we never do another Anchor Bay again, and if I do, then I'll be seeing it four times and reading the book, apparently. I was really glad that you read the book because I had read that there was a book, and I kept thinking, oh, God, please don't make me read it. Oh, God, please don't make me read it. Please don't make me read it. I just wasn't going to do a Books and Nachos. That's all I can say. After I finished it, I knew that there was nothing in it that would be a standalone show. Anything, they are companions. I'll give Rob Zombie this much. One cannot talk about one without bringing up the other. They don't stand alone. They don't stand apart. I totally owe you a drink. (laughs) Yes. Make it three. Yes, I, I concur. Perhaps more than one or two or three. So we will be back this coming Tuesday on Totally Free Tuesday with the Stephen King Carry series. So until next time, we are not the crying sheep of God. We are the Mighty Podcast. So did you listen? Oh, How did was I it? Listen, did I listen? Of course I listened. You were fantastic. Yeah? And uh, I recorded you so you could hear yourself back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You know, I think I'm starting to like it. <laughs> Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, Father, you give us the venom. Fill us with your essence. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. We honor you through our actions and our thoughts. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to take it home and give it a listen. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on. Come and join us. We'll be waiting. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I just knew that somewhere along the line I was going to have to try it for myself. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Why do you have to get so intense when you do these readings? All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The goat has free will. And for that reason, he will always be punished by the oppressor god. We serve the butcher. Okay. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You gotta tell him. He'll listen to you. Me? You won't listen to anybody. 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, we done yet? I know I am. Good God, let's get the F out of here. Today we're discussing the Lords of Salem. Today we're discussing the Lords of Salem. And so whatever we're getting, it's unfiltered zombie. So did... <laughs> Sorry, unfiltered zombie sounds really gross, like perhaps it's some kind of home brew or something. <laughs> well, yes, one wonder if you should consult your doctor before consuming, yes. By Friday, yeah, she's smoking heroin in bed and giving priest a blowjob while walking her dog in the cemetery. She's gone to sea, really, within a matter of days. You want to say cemetery? Cemetery. What did I say? Cemetery. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you just actually start over it, well, at least with okay. the word cemetery? By Friday. In its theatrical release, did get a good jump out of me. <laughs> It's a cute little sound. (laughs) It's like a bewitched thing. Are you wriggling your nose? (laughs) With this witch ritual, say that five times fast. And this crazy sounding, (coughs) excuse me, hold on. (coughs) Watching the commentary of this movie and hearing that Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie. (laughs) And hearing that Rob Zombie essentially you had did this it again. Sh- <laughs> no, I, no, I did. Yeah, you yeah, did. You did. <laughs> All right. My mom thought I was an antichrist when she was pregnant with me because that movie was big around the time she got pregnant. And I, I think we have yet to prove her wrong. Yeah. So I <laughs> grew up having to hear how the, my mother was concerned I would be the antichrist, and that movie scared the hell out of her, literally. But how did we feel about? Another oh, was it Bloomberg, not Bloomberg. Blumhouse. Uh, Blumhouse. Blumhouse. I almost said Broheem. <laughs> Broham. So until next time, we are not the crying sheep of God. We are the mighty podcast. I have no clue what the fuck that means. Yeah, I kind of remember something like that. There's a lot of talk about the goat. Everybody, everybody what? mumbled, and then they had that. I know. Uh, uh, I, I did turn on the um, close captioning. Did it help? Because there was, yeah, she kept saying, blah, 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 king. I was like, lead us a king? Lead us and then? I was like, no, bleed us a king. I was like, oh, okay, well, that semi makes sense. Yeah, it's because she kept doing that weird, like, affection, reflection in her voice, and you couldn't understand it. And cackling and, you know. Yeah, I don't know. But the, but the joke, of course, is every little thing that you do learn never gets you any closer to understanding it anyway. So. No. It is what it is. They're, they're marvelously uncomplicated at the end of the day. So if we ever meet Rob Zombie, any of us, we have to ask him, Lord of Salem, what the fuck? He has uh, no answers. Know, yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. He, he de- it's, it's, it's exactly what it appears to be. Now playing podcast. Whoa. Sorry, I think I owe you a new needle. <laughs>